0: I would love for you to hit that subscribe button so that you are getting the podcast as they are released. It's going to make me oh so happy to know that you are a subscriber of the pod. You are officially a Betty in the Bettyverse. And of course, you are never going to miss an episode and be the first to know when it drops. Thank you so much.
1: There's a lot of myth out there that individuals believe that the protein requirements are different for men versus women. And that's actually not true. Protein requirements are based on blood volume and lean muscle mass or ideal body weight. Has nothing to do with gender. I've been fighting with one arm tied behind my back. But what happens when I'm finally set free? What we do in life?
2: Echoes in eternity. supposed to be hard. If it wasn't hard, everyone would do it. The hard makes it great. Only love can truly save the world.
0: This is my mission now, forever. Hey there, welcome back to the podcast. This is your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. Today, I'm really excited for this conversation. I sat down to speak with Dr. Gabrielle Leon, and she is a functional medicine physician out of New York City, and she practices something called muscle-centric medicine. So what that means is putting the organ system of the muscles of the muscular system at the center of her practice, She is an advocate that muscle is the largest endocrine and metabolic organ in the body, and it relates very intimately with our current healthcare crisis in terms of obesity, in terms of functionality, in terms of longevity and performance. And she talks and is very well-versed in many areas of clinical practice, so very well-versed on nutrition. And we talked a lot about her expertise today as it relates to muscles, protein, muscle protein synthesis. We talked about animal proteins versus plant proteins and the differences between them. And we also got into a very interesting discussion with the recent film, The Game Changers, which is a plant-based Uh, film based on this idea that plant-based is superior to a meat-based diet. So we talk about some of the things that she liked about the film, some of the things that she didn't like, where she thought the science was lacking, some of the claims, etc. And I had a few thoughts on it as well that I shared in this podcast. And then we got into a discussion around mindset. So a lot of her practice, she's married to a Navy SEAL and she sees a lot of Navy SEALs and a lot of the Canadian military in her practice. She talks about some of the different attitudes and mindsets and the way that they approach problems and how that's different than civilians. So she gave a couple of really great examples about that. And we had a really nice conversation around mental grit, mental toughness, and how to reframe things. So I thought that was a really useful discussion that came towards the end of our hour and a half or so conversation. And something I really like about Gabrielle is her ability to take, you know, we were talking about very complex things. We're talking about mTOR, complex one, we're talking about amino acid profile, limiting amino acids and ketogenic amino acids and all these different things that really require quite a bit of training, formal training. And she's able to explain it in a way that I thought, no matter where you are in your journey, whether you are just beginning in your health journey, or you have a PhD In nutrition, I think you can take some value out of this conversation. Now, she is very much an animal protein advocate. And we talked about some of the differences between the long-term things that she sees in clinical practice in terms of vitamin deficiencies that she sees in vegans and vegetarians and how to counteract that. And if people are going to choose to be on a plant based, just derive their proteins uh, from plant based sources, what they can do to drive muscle protein synthesis. And you'll see why this is important when we, when you get to the part of our conversation where we talk about leucine and the difference in availability of leucine, which is the primary amino acid that drives muscle protein synthesis and its abundance in plant Proteins versus animal proteins. So, definitely want to wrap this in a bow and say that for the most part, I think Dr. Gabrielle and I are on the same page. We both believe in plant proteins. I'm a huge advocate for plant proteins. Uh, Where we both agree is that there are animal proteins are very necessary for preventing things like B12 deficiency, D3 and other things like omega-3s. And we talk about ways that if you are vegetarian for ethical reasons or because you're concerned about the planet, uh, and I have to say I agree with all of those things, the way that the animals are treated, the way that they live and the way that they die. She does give some, some useful examples in terms of how to... How to get around that if you still want to stay vegetarian and vegan you know certain branching chain amino acids and certain strategies that she talks about in terms of how to continue to be vegan or vegetarian and still drive that muscle quality that quality of, of muscle and to maintain that lean muscle mass over the course of your life so I hope that you I hope that you enjoy this I certainly did I thought she knocked this out of the park so without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Gabrielle Leon. you All right, Dr. Gabrielle Leon, welcome to the podcast. I'm thrilled to have you here today.
1: Me too. I am glad that we made this work.
0: Yeah, me too. And there's a couple of reschedules that I had to do on my end, but thrilled that you've made the uh, the accommodations. And I'm so I'm so excited for our conversation because you know, like I was saying to you in the pre chat, I want to explore a range of topics that I know that you are an expert on. So I want to talk about muscles. I want to talk about protein. I want to talk about animal protein, plant protein. The scope of practice. I know you have a clinic, and you are running things uh, in New York City. And you know, maybe we can start off this conversation with probably the most important topic of all, which is which is motherhood. Yeah, uh, your new mama. Uh, right. Yeah. So, baby uh, Aries, she's is she fifteen weeks?
1: She is um, four months yesterday. Four months yesterday. Four months it's amazing. Six, Sixteen weeks. It's it's incredible. You know, I've been thinking a lot about. What significant life events change one completely? There's the before and the after. Yeah. I would say there's probably two, and that's death, right? Mm -hmm. You're no longer the same person, and birth. It is an instantaneous rite of passage. So it's been pretty wild, for sure. When you bring a new life into the world, it really changes your perspective,
0: I so agree with that. And I was, you know, I think for someone who is, you know, driven like me, and of course I see you are very ambitious, very driven, very data and empirically and evidence based. I think it's, it's such a cataclysm, like, you know, these worlds collide where you, I never thought when I had my first son that I could love somebody as much as I loved him. And I would, I would just spend hours staring at him. I would just like my whole day. I was like, what did I do? Oh, I stared at him and I breastfed him. That's what I did. Yeah.
1: How long did you do that for?
0: Uh, I breastfed my first, so Andreas, I breastfed him for about, I think it was 18 or 19 months. And Sebastian, my second child, second child syndrome, it was three
1: years. Oh my goodness. I'm thinking (laughs) six months and I'm done. I want you to get the immunoglobulins you need and I am done breastfeeding you. Yeah. Even my my three year old,
0: he was three at the time, so now he's he's seven now. And even sometimes he'll be like, Mommy, is there any more milk left in there? I'm like, no, the you know, the boopy fairy came, she took my milk, you know, (laughs) gave them to you know the next mama who need them. So Yeah, it was uh, we breastfed for a long time, and that was actually you know one of my questions I wanted to ask you was was there anything that surprised you in terms of that that passage of becoming a mother? For me, it was breastfeeding. Like I was so floored with how difficult it was and how no one was talking about it. Yeah, was there something like that for you? Did you find that there was anything that surprised you about pregnancy labor? Absolutely.
1: So there's the pregnancy aspect, which you know you and I have kind of talked about it and we're friends, we see each other outside of this podcast. Yeah. I was sick for 10 months.
2: Yeah.
1: I would say that many women don't experience that.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And it really is very profound when you are nauseous and vomiting for 10 months. So that that was something interesting. The other interesting aspect of that is you can learn to adjust to any circumstance. It didn't matter how sick I was, I was still training. I was still Mm -hmm. seeing patients. I was traveling around the country speaking. The peripheral stuff fell away. The addition of, you know, doing additional things like writing and extraneous stuff fell to the wayside. But it was very interesting to see how you can kind of adjust your life to the experience. Mm -hmm. And then that becomes your norm. Birth was also interesting. I did a natural birth. I actually was induced. My water broke early. I was induced with Pitocin, which any mom will tell you. I don't know if that happened to you. It's very painful.
0: That was my first. My first birth. It was, uh, <laughs> I had that experience too. Water broke. They're like, let's actually. There's meconium. I had meconium in um in the yeah. wa- in the in the um in the water that was passed, and like, let's let's actually get this baby out right now because we want to make sure that he hadn't ingested any.
1: Right. Yeah. I didn't have that part, um, but I did have the early water breaking, and I had to yeah. be in. And I still did the birth naturally, which was incredibly painful. I think that it's um, totally doable for women. I mm-hmm. think there's a ton of fear surrounding a natural birth. It's uh, an exchange. There's a pain exchange for a product.
0: That's right. Yeah, that's a really good way of putting it. And it's temporary. It's transient too. Totally
1: temporary. So yeah, it it wasn't even an issue. I mean, I labored over 10 hours. It was very painful, but it was, you know, it's kind of the equivalent to running a race or doing a sporting event. And it was, that wasn't really an issue. Breastfeeding was very hard for me.
0: It you know what it is for most women, most women that I've spoken to, we all think about the labor and the delivery, and we you know share stories, and I think that that's amazing. But not enough of us are taught. I had so I delivered in a hospital. I had midwives uh, that facilitated the delivery, and then post. Partum, they came to the house to you know check on the baby, and one of them was a lactation consultant. So I had coaching from an LC. Like so, she was telling me how I still my nipples were cracked, they were bleeding. Totally, I was walking around with potatoes and cabbage in my in my tops when I when I wasn't. Bra- it was horrendous for two weeks. Yeah, and yeah, uh,
1: yeah. that that was the most surprising aspect. It for me, it felt like someone was putting a piece of glass in each nipple. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Every two hours and twisting it, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) it was. It kind of blew my mind. So that that was um uh, way more challenging than I thought.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you're not alone there. And I'm 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 actually glad that we sort of stumbled onto this topic because I think that, like I was saying, I think we all talk about the labor. You know, we know in pregnancy at this certain week, you know, your baby's the size of a potato, and then at this week, it's the size of a whatever. But we don't talk about how difficult the you know, there, I always say there ain't no hood like motherhood, right? Like there's no, there's no one really prepares you for the, first of all, the overwhelm, like the, the recovery from that marathon, which is labor and delivery, yeah. but also things like breastfeeding. And I think a lot of people give up prematurely because they are just gobsmacked and taken off. There's a right hook and they weren't really expecting it. So yeah, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. I think that's, you know, going to be really useful and valuable for our listeners.
1: Yeah, they should definitely not give up. You you know, you figure it out.
0: So let's talk about your training and your nutrition. So I know, um, so Aries is, you know, four months now. Uh, Are you back to training? Are you, how has your nutrition changed? Like what's kind of going on there?
1: (laughs) So while I was pregnant, it was this really funny thing. I am a really high protein person and it's just always worked well for me. And when I say high protein, I mean, you know, close to 130 to 150 grams a day.
2: Mm -hmm. And
1: um, I've functioned well like that for years. When I got pregnant, I actually couldn't eat protein. So my diet changed very drastically. And it was pretty high in carbohydrates. And as soon as I gave birth, I was able to switch back to a higher protein diet. So really, my nutrition now is back to a, a higher protein diet. And my training, I typically do weights, kettlebells, uh, Compound movements and that has been a challenge i'm back training but it's slower right your body isn't doesn't move the same way your center of gravity has now changed you, you know it's it's been an interesting transition
2: right
0: Right. And I've seen on Instagram uh, and I've sent you, you know, my little messages when I see you know, she's in the little carrier off to the side and she's right. giving you like the stank eye while you're like kind of hustling on the on the stepmaster, right? Right.
1: <laughs> right. And um, you know, it's interesting you have this um, new perspective. It's not just about you. You now are responsible for this little being. And mm-hmm. there's a pull when you hear the cry and then the crying goes on. It's, mm-hmm. it's hard to balance both. Yeah. Uh, I you know, I have gone back to training with kettlebells. My strength is incredibly diminished. I just did my measurements in body fat for the first time postpartum and it's significantly higher
2: yeah. than
1: it, it has been my entire life. So it's interesting.
0: It's interesting. And I think, you know, you are someone who is very empirically and very data driven. So obviously I'm singing to the choir here when I say, you know, nine months up, nine months down, right? So to have at sixteen weeks you're just sort of what I would classify as like trimester four, right? You're just kind of getting out of, you know, your body being used to being pregnant and it'll be interesting to see your changes over, uh, over the course of the year.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I always think to myself, am I not trying hard enough? Am I not pushing hard enough? It's a, it's an interesting perspective because I am very data driven Mm -hmm. and I'm also very uh, aware of an internal dialogue and and tolerating excuses. Mm -hmm. You know, I always ask myself, "Am I being tough enough on myself?" Right? Because there is a softness that exists outside that says, "Okay, well, you know, you can just kind of coast and um, maybe do less." And I, I find that that's dangerous for people because will that extend longer? Right. You know? Right. And, and I don't know that I, I don't know the answer. I mean, it's all it's all totally new. I would agree with that, and
0: I think you know, I, I always keep the mantra in my mind. Like the only way to coast is downhill. Like you can't, like the only way that you coast in a car is if you're, if the gravity is, if the gravity is doing the work. So I agree with you and I, I, I too struggle with that dialogue. So there is a, there is a blending and a marriage of that. I like to call it more masculine energy where it's very, you know, data-driven, task-driven, you know, am I checking off all the boxes and the more feminine or softer energy, where I'm checking in with myself and saying, "Am I? Am I tired? Do I need? Do I really need a break here?" You know, and you are still breastfeeding, and there's so there's yes. that energetic expenditure of create. You know, so there's all these different kind of things that are that play into it. But I, I, yeah, the overachiever in me loves and honors the overachiever in you.
1: Like I get it, no, girl. Just, I, I get 100%, it. hundred yeah. percent. You know, I, I really just want to have that. I want to expose that that very frank nature, right? Because, you know, I see it with my patients. The moment we become comfortable mm. is the moment that our our progress stops. Right. And there's a certain level of comfort to say, okay, well, you know, I've been breastfeeding and home for four months, and there's a certain level of comfort, and that's my new normal.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and the moment there becomes a level of comfort is the moment you are no longer growing in a certain way, right? right? So now it's the next phase that you have to ask yourself, is this is this where it should be? Am I doing what I should be doing?
0: So this parses really well with where I want to go with our conversation around muscles, because I think
1: muscles are,
0: you've talked about this idea that muscles are the organ of longevity. Of course, protein proteins are, and we'll, we'll talk about proteins as well. Proteins are in every single cell of our body, right? We need right. them. This is such a hot, Topic right now, and I wanted you to come on to dissect this and make sense of the data, so that people can listen to your to our conversation and make an informed decision for that. You know, in terms of what's best for them. So let's talk about. Let's start from the forest, and then we're going to kind of get into the trees, and then we're going to get into the granular stuff. So, why do you believe that muscles are the organ of longevity?
1: So, muscle is very interesting. A lot for the longest time, people thought that it was this. object of locomotion, right? It's the tissue of locomotion. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: But actually muscle is much more than that. It is, and there is scientific data, that it is an organ. And by mass, it is the largest endocrine organ in the body. What do I mean by that? Well, when you contract muscles, they secrete a substance called myokines. And myokines are um, proteins that are anti-inflammatory. There's multiple ones. They go to different parts of the body and they do different things. It's still a very new science, but it, it is an endocrine organ. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one. So muscle, as it relates to an organ that secretes things. Now, the other side of muscle is that it is, it's, it's our metabolic currency. It is responsible for... of uh, glucose disposal. So glucose disposal, the carbohydrates that we eat. It is one of the largest sites for lipid oxidation. A lot of people talk about, well, you know, I have high cholesterol, I should take a statin. Uh, Another way of thinking about that is the more muscle you have, the more uh, fat you're oxidizing. Mm -hmm. It is largely responsible for our resting metabolic rate, and that's the amount of energy that we're burning at rest. Also, muscle is our biggest protector for chronic disease, from chronic disease. So obesity, hypertension, Alzheimer's, cardiovascular disease, these are all diseases of metabolic dysregulation. Right. And muscle is really that kind of golden egg to protect you as you age. So that's kind of like the big picture. And on that note, one of the other... uh, Concepts of muscle-centric medicine, which is this this term that I uh, I coined this term from my years of training, is that we focus on being over fat. Everybody's focused on obesity, over fatness, mm-hmm. body fat percent. But the issue is actually being under muscled. Right, and, and it's such a new concept that we don't even know. So for you, I don't know what percent muscle mass you should be, and for me, we don't know that that answer either mm-hmm. because we've spent decades focusing on the problem on on a problem as opposed to a solution.
0: Right. And I I love what you're saying in terms of the muscles being, and as a whole, the largest organ in the body being an endocrine organ. And just to extend on what you were saying around myokines, these are, you know, anti-inflammatory, as you said they're, you know, when you contract your muscle, that's when they're released. Interestingly, that's where, you know, we see receptors, myokine receptors in the brain bone liver yep. and pancreas. So this is backing up everything that you're saying in terms of this is an endocrine and metabolic organ. There's no reason why there would be myokine receptors on the liver, liver on the, or the pancreas if the muscles weren't intimately connected with this metab- like this metabolic component of our health. I like this idea of the excess adiposity or the excess fat not being the problem, it's this under muscle, it's being yeah. under muscled. One of my mentors, his name is uh, Dr. Michael Hall. He's a functional, uh, functional neurologist. And I remember once he was in Toronto and I was attending one of his lectures. He was saying, we have these you know, devices, these Fitbits and whatever that tell us that we need to be walking 10,000 steps a day. And he said, you know, when we look at our ancestors, they were they were taking twenty to twenty five k, like twenty to twenty five thousand steps of this like low level activity through the day. Yes, and most of us don't even hit the ten k, you know, the Fitbit recommendation, or maybe not just Fitbit, but you know, that's the yeah. most common, I think, you know, sensor that uh, people use. People don't even get that. So there's also this idea of the sedentary lifestyle.
1: Yes, we're very well. domesticated as a yeah. culture. Mm-hmm. We're a domesticated culture. Yeah. And with that it actually we have to evolve what we're eating to make up for that. Right.
0: And if you don't, I you mean your your work is you know your post I think your post grad work was in sarcopenic obesity.
1: It, my post grad work was yes it was in obesity medicine and geriatrics
0: And geriatrics
1: and all sciences. So all of that um, combined and part of that is obesogenic sarcopenia.
0: So let's talk about let's define obesogenic sarcopenia for the listener what happens and then let's talk about some of the ways that we can prevent it and and, and clinically what you what you see and some of the prophylactic things that we can take with it.
1: Absolutely. So let's start with defining what sarcopenia is. Everybody's heard probably heard about sarcopenia as it relates to a disease of aging. So you see a frail elderly person and you think, wow, this person has sarcopenia, they've lost all their muscle. But actually, sarcopenia is not a disease of aging. It, and obesogenic sarcopenia is just the concept that it's a now over fat, fat infiltrates into the muscle. You've now become over fat and under muscled. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of the equivalent to a marbled steak. Good for sarcopenia. dinner, not so good for a human. Totally, keep right? your yeah. keep your fat out of uh, your muscle and just keep it into the steak that you're eating. Yeah, yeah. So sarcopenia is a disease that can happen in midlife. And really it's the destruction of muscle tissue and it's muscle size and muscle strength. And really it comes from underuse. I mean, there's a few things that, it, that can happen with it. It's underuse, so being sedentary. It's having low-grade inflammation, poor, low-protein diet, Mm-hmm. medications can do it. So there, there are a few things that contribute to sarcopenia, insulin resistance. You know, it's interesting. It's, it's a disease. So the loss of muscle is actually a disease. It has its own ICD-10 code now. Yeah, It's interesting.
0: And so how do you, so if someone is listening to this and they're like, you know what, I'm a 45-year-old you know, woman I, or, or male, you know, I sit at my desk for eight or nine hours a day. I know that when I get home, you know, I may sit for another couple of hours, you know, watching TV or what have you. If they were a patient in your clinic, is there, or or maybe they don't necessarily have to be a patient, is there ways for us to determine how we can, is there ways to evaluate muscle mass uh, and functional strength? Like what are some of the yes. ways that we can so do this?
1: This? Is, this is a really good question. Now, the ways in which they traditionally do it aren't super valuable for the younger population. So they traditionally do it through walking speed and grip strength. Mm -hmm. It's not a great way because there's a level of capacity for a younger individual that can kind of make up for those, you know, poor quality muscle. Mm -hmm. So the way in which you would determine it in the elderly is we don't have a great way to determine it in, in our youth. Definitely you can see it on imaging, but that's not a standard, a standard way.
0: Right. And it's not available to everybody. is, you know, if you're talking about DEC, I'm assuming you're talking about DEXA. Scan. And
1: MRI, so you can see, um, you can see the quality of the tissue. Mm-hmm. And that's not really no one is gonna just image you. I mean, you can get a body fat percentage um, and a muscle mass, but it's not gonna tell you the quality of your tissue. Mm-hmm. So on the periphery, you can, you know, in blood work you can also look at how high is their insulin, their fasting insulin right, it should be less than six. And Mm -hmm. the average, you know, it should be, I mean, personally, in my clinic, i like to see it less than five. But, you know, it should be between four and six in the blood. And the average individual has it closer to nine. Right. It's not higher. Right. Because sarcopenia, as it relates to the disease of the muscle, is really an issue of um, that the, the stores become full. So the glycogen synthase, the glycogen storage becomes full. And you begin to start overspilling um, fats, fatty acids into the blood, you know, so you'll start to see it, you'll see elevated cholesterol, you'll see elevated insulin, it's, you'll see um, elevated glucose. Let's parse this
0: with the, I know we talked about when we were in, in the pre-chat before we got on here, we want to talk about the PROTAGE study, because I think that this really goes well with what we're talking about here. So what is the PROTAGE And we'll link this out into the show notes yeah. just for anyone listening so they can take a look at it themselves. So what is this study? This is <laughs> yeah. really, and, and what was it designed for? Can you walk us through what yeah, that is? Yeah,
1: so PROTAGE study is very valuable and actually it's a position paper. So it's a position paper that got together all... Um, sarcopenic experts, uh, mm-hmm. geriatricians, nutritionists, physiologists, to determine the amount of protein needed to protect individuals, okay. and largely from sarcopenia and aging, so age-related issues, because the current recommendation for protein is 0.8 grams per kilogram. And that's based on nitrogen balance studies that happened, you know, for, for 18-year-old young men, and right. that's uh, not really valid and you know with science everything evolves so we have to be able to evolve with the science so they they came up with the the new recommendations which is a minimum of 1.2 grams per kilogram up to about 1.5 grams per kilogram if not even a little bit higher as a baseline to protect the aging population
0: as a baseline yeah okay so okay so we have a 1.2 to 1.5 grams per kilogram
1: what what it's about th- double so it's about double so the disease so rda is basically disease prevention right so this is right. the minimum amount that you need to maintain for disease
0: and that's not optimal <laughs> living that's just no. not right. d- not wasting away
1: correct and in fact they've doubled that recommendation
0: so I've heard, you know, I was in figure competitions. I know you and I have talked about this. You were doing this as well. At the gym, there tends to be this sentiment around one gram of protein per, per pound of body weight. So if we, think about, um, if we think about protein synthesis, I mean, first of all, I think, and I'd like to talk about the differences between a young person in driving muscle protein synthesis and someone who is aged or elderly. Right. But what are your what are your thoughts on one gram of protein per pound of body weight? So that's about that would be about two point two grams weight. Am I doing that right? Kilogram. Kilogram is two yeah, two point two grams per kilogram of body weight.
1: So that is safe and um it's a good baseline recommendation. It Mm -hmm. it absolutely is safe. Um and is a good baseline recommendation for really everybody. So, I mean, that's how I start in my clinic, mm-hmm. but anything above 250 grams, I, I tend not to go higher than that just because of the capacity to dispose of urea. Right, um,
0: right, right, right. Okay. In the, when I was reading the study, they talked about the difference between fast and slow protein. Do you want to comment on, on that at all in terms of explaining sure. what is a fast protein? What yeah. is a slow protein?
1: So, and that position came, that position paper, while so s- still very valid, came out uh, a little while ago. So I don't use slow proteins. So the whole point, and in, in, so let's think a fast protein is something that is absorbed quickly. Okay. And then a casein is something that is absorbed, you know, it's a slower protein. Okay. Now,
0: when so we think Fast about protein would be like whey, sorry to interrupt you, but yeah, exactly. whey protein would be yes. fast casein yes. that we see proteins in cheeses and stuff slow.
1: Okay. Exactly. So all the studies are based when it comes to muscle protein synthesis are based on leucine. In okay. order to trigger muscle protein synthesis, the blood volume of leucine needs to reach a certain level. And in order to get that um, muscle protein turnover, that muscle protein synthesis to happen, that machinery to happen, it needs to be at about 2.5 grams okay. of leucine per meal. Mm-hmm. Now, interestingly, it needs to happen quickly because it is based on blood leucine amounts. So if you are, for example, sipping a casein protein over the day or over an hour, you're not going to get that muscle protein synthesis because you will never reach that threshold. And I see this, people make this mistake all the time in clinic. Um, and just in general is they'll sip on say branched chain amino acids, or they'll sip on their whey protein shake. In order to optimize your metabolism and optimize the whole point of what you 're trying to do, it actually needs to be fed in a bolus amount mm-hmm. so within right 30, at, all that's at once that yeah. 's right within mm-hmm. thirty minutes
2: mm-hmm.
1: once it reaches a threshold that 's when you trigger the machinery so a casein protein if it 's taking time to get in and you 're not actually getting a peak level of leucine, then um, you're really doing yourself a disservice. So
0: this is, a, this is a question I have, I get asked this question all the time. I have a certain opinion on it, but I'd be, you know, excited to hear what you have to say. When we think about timing of protein as it relates to your exercise, yes. you know, is it best to, is there a time window yes. in terms of when to eat your protein? And if so, what is that timeline Yes, or time, uh, that timeframe?
1: Uh, the data is very mixed on this out there but I will tell you for the aging population. Now, when I say aging and you know, taking it back to sarcopenic obesity, aging is also, there's a state of low-grade inflammation.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And obesity is a state of low-grade inflammation. So if you're not really at your optimal body composition and you have a little extra weight, there is a blunted response to muscle protein synthesis. Already. Yes.
0: yes. Yeah. And, that, okay. and
1: there's uh, one paper that came out, I think it was by Burke. It's, it's very interesting. I'll see if I can find it and send it to you. Mm-hmm. So now you've got a 30-year-old with the same kind of anabolic resistance as a older individual. Therefore, one way to overcome that anabolic resistance, which is a blunted response to protein, is to have protein right after your training because you have increased blood flow. So now you have increased nutrient delivery to the muscle tissue.
0: So they're primed to be taking it up.
1: Exactly. They are now primed to absorb the amino acids. So
0: let's talk about, let's go, let's go deeper in muscle protein synthesis. We've talked a little bit about uh, exercise. So there's, there's two main ways that we, that we initiate muscle protein synthesis. One is through the diet and one is through exercise. That's right. And of course, together, we're going to have a you know an amalgamation or an, uh, you know an increased effect when we do that together. So let's let's just start with diet. When we think about over the course of our life is our ability to generate muscle pro- to initiate muscle protein synthesis does this change from you know being in our 20s or our 30s to being you know 40s
1: <laughs> which is where I
0: am now and 50s and and beyond. So, yeah. <laughs> Thank
1: you. <laughs> So when you're young, your body, your, your body composition, muscle protein synthesis is driven by hormones. It's driven by insulin, it's driven by growth hormones, you know, testosterone and the sex hormones. Mm-hmm. But as you age, typically, when you hit around 40, testosterone becomes lower, um, IGF1 becomes lower. the mm-hmm. anabolic hormones are, are lower. So now you begin to drive muscle protein synthesis by a different way. And you don't want to drive it with insulin, right? So you don't want to get um, large spikes of insulin. You want to drive your muscle tissue by resistance exercise and by training. Um, sorry, by resistance exercise and by diet. You, yes. really have to, you have to evolve your diet from the way that you ate when you were younger to much more targeted. You have to be much more targeted as you age especially when you hit your 40s and you're no longer driven by hormones.
0: And is there are there gender differences there? So do we see differences between men, like the protein requirements to drive MPS in men versus MPS in females? Yes.
1: No, because it's based on blood volume. It's
0: based on oh, okay.
1: It is based on blood volume. So that's a it's a, that's a really important point to bring up. So let's let's clarify that. There's a lot of myth out there that individuals believe that the protein requirements are different for men versus women. And that's actually not true. Protein requirements are based on blood volume and lean muscle mass or ideal body weight. It has nothing to do with gender. So oh, for example, yeah, it, mm-hmm. yes. So for example, that allows us to really streamline the information. We know that at say a you know, someone who's in their thirties or forties that you need a minimum of 30 grams of high quality protein to stimulate muscle protein synthesis. Now, whether that's a man or a woman, they still need the minimum of 30 grams because of the blood volume to get the amount of leucine in the blood is the same for a man or woman.
0: Okay. So from that 30 grams of protein, we're extracting that two to two and a half grams of leucine. Okay. So, okay.
1: Okay, and that's what's and, and that's really interesting. So it's not it, it, there is not a gender difference,
0: but blood volume. I mean, that makes a lot of sense too. Like to do it from by blood volume, that's great. And then, yeah. do we max out? Is there a certain amount of um, protein at which the benefit for MPS is no longer? Do we no longer see that, or is yeah. it that two point five is that minimum amount? Like that twenty, let's say twenty five grams or so yeah. of whey protein or whatever it is.
1: Yes. So you probably max out at around 60. There's no benefit. So the, you know, it's an initiation of 30 grams uh, for that two two and a half grams of leucine, but that doesn't mean that you've maxed out your machinery. So it's probably right. more optimal between 30 and 50. And once you hit 60, you absorb it all, but the utilization isn't, you're not getting a more robust response at that so the, point.
0: So the 2.5 is just, let's just start oiling the gears so they start turning. Okay. right. So let's, so we talked about diet. We've seen, you know, this changes from our 20s and 30s to 40s and beyond in terms of our, you know, we become more anabolic. What I'm hearing from you is that we're becoming more anabolic resistant. There's more resistance as we age. So we therefore need to overcome that with more protein.
1: Right. And that's a really, that's a very exceptionally important point.
0: Right. And I think that the opposite I often see the opposite in practice. I often see that people will reduce their protein as they age, which when we're thinking about this through the lens of longevity and through the lens of maintaining lean muscle mass is the opposite of what you actually want to be doing.
1: It is probably the single worst piece of advice that anyone could be given is to, in midlife, go vegan or vegetarian and really reduce your protein intake. It's probably the, and I think it's one of the things that really... uh, fires me up because, mm-hmm. you know, I did a fellowship in aging, a legitimate right. fellowship at Wash U in geriatrics where, you know, you're at the bedside of hundreds of dying individuals mm-hmm. that they've now fallen, they've broken a hip and they're in the hospital and they, they cannot recover because their muscle mass is so poor. Right. You, you know, the the conversation changes dramatically as we start talking about aging. Everybody mm-hmm. can argue when you're younger, right? Go ahead. Argue is paleo better, is veganism better, is vegetarianism? Go ahead and argue. But now, when you start hitting 40, 50, 60, it's a completely different argument. And no qualified health professional is going to say, you know what, you're aging, let's reduce your protein. It's dangerous.
0: Right. Right. And I think that that is. When we and this is one I, I know we're going to talk about this when we get if we get to uh, Game Changers, which is a new sort of documentary on plant-based um, performance and athleticism. But that's the missing piece of information that I found through the entire film is there's a difference between information yes. Yes. and application. So there's a difference between being a clinician like yourself who sees yes. things on the front line that goes to war every day yes. versus this paper was better than this paper for X Y. Like I am not discounting. We need good quality evidence and I am 98 to 99% there with, you know, some of the reasons why people eat plants. We have the polyphenols and the flavonoids and the, you know, and the, and the xenohormetic like, hormetic stressors from resveratrol and ECGC. I'm all there. And I also think, you know, factory farm and, we, uh, uh, you know, factory farming is terrible for the animals, terif- terrible for the environment. We need more grass fed, grass finished, you know, animals in their more natural habitat. However, however, the clinical application of what is being proposed, I think, is yes. poor. It is very difficult for Someone who is vegetarian, and I and I've seen this enough in practice that I don't feel like I'm being unfair here, you know. And I would assume that you are the same too. You, you, when you're in practice, you just see patterns. And my vegetarians and my vegans love them with they're like the most health conscious people on the planet, but they're the ones that I deal with with the most deficiencies. They're the ones Mm -hmm. where I see the B12 stuff, I see the D3 stuff, I see you know that that's the you know the application of the information becomes very difficult for most of them. So. Uh, I appreciate you bringing that up because that was my big beef, <laughs> you know, pun intended. That was my big beef movie because it's all information and there's a difference between a, being a researcher and being a clinician.
1: Right. Yeah. And you know, you didn't have, and I don't even call that, that was not even a documentary. That was a film. And that's yeah. why I was able to say what it did because there's no scientific peer reviewed ramifications for a film. Yeah, Right. It's, it's Purely entertainment. I mean, the science is is laughable
2: mm. in, in
1: all of it. The mm-hmm. you know they talked about that plant and animal protein are the same. I mean, these are hard numbers. Yeah, you've got uh, protein quality where there's no dispute. I mean, this is in the science for decades. You know, at the very core of this film is an anti-animal narrative, and that's right. really what it's about. Mm-hmm. So you know, people are talking about protein, which is it totally is the black sheep of the macronutrient family. It's incredibly emotional for individuals, right? Because it, it just is. So, and I don't,
0: I don't blame, I don't actually blame totally. them for that because I think that the mo- factory farmed animals, the way their lives and their deaths are horrible. I am incredibly bullish on sauna as a therapy for recovery, heart health, and overall aging well. A state of well-being necessary for a strong physique and a strong mind. If you visit sunlighton.com better and use code better to get a discount. That is Sunlighten, S-U-N-L-I-G-H-T-E-N dot com slash B-E-T-T-E-R, and use code better at checkout. I agree you know? with them. They're right. And it is ruining the environment. They, you know, no well, no. Yeah,
1: we should talk about the, you know, and I think the environmental aspect is, is another piece where people <sighs> exploit the animals for uh, that anti-animal narrative. So I'm mm-hmm. I, I and I don't know how what it is in Canada, but I, I'll tell you what it is in the U.S. All right. So for greenhouse gas, all of agriculture makes up nine percent. All of agriculture. Of of
0: contribution to greenhouse gases, that's
1: it. That's it. Out of of all the U.S. uh, agriculture, it's greenhouse gas is nine percent. Of that nine percent, less than half is cattle. So, if people really wanted to make a massive impact, and it's the anti-animal narrative about cattle that is confusing people, because here's the, the 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 reality is: is most people, when animals are treated well, have no issue eating them. Right, right, right. so if you don't have an issue eating animals, they're gonna go after two things. and number one is it's bad for your health, and number two is it's bad for the environment. right. so the vegan propaganda, there's propaganda behind this the the anti I shouldn't even say vegan, the anti-animal narrative propaganda behind this mm-hmm. is to get you to a feel that uh, protein and animals are bad for your health, or B, animals are bad for the environment. Right. When the truth is beef consumption is down 30%. Mm-hmm. Out of all of greenhouse gas, 80% of it is from transportation, electricity and industry. It's not from cattle, it's not from agriculture. But that's where that's where the media is going because it's perpetuating the top the, this and this is this is data from the EPA and it's challenging for you know it's challenging information for the public.
0: Yeah, and it's difficult to it, it's it's difficult as well. I had a conversation with uh, Dr. Mark Hyman, who I know is a, a colleague of, of of both of ours, and his whole sort of next wave of you know his next book and the the topics yeah. that he's really passionate about talking about is this idea of regenerative agriculture. Yes, and this idea of building up our topsoil so that it. you know, the carbon sink, So it will extract the carbon from the atmosphere and bring it down into the soil. And that only happens when you have cattle and, you know, chickens and whatever, you know, roaming the grasslands, pooping all over the place. That's actually what you need.
1: Yes, yes, completely. And regenerative agriculture is going to be so helpful as we think about it in the future.
0: Yeah, and he was saying something ridiculous like it was ridiculous like something like we only have 60 harvests left because the soil has been so depleted of its nutrients that after you know and I think we harvest let's call it once a year we have like 60 years left before we're in huge huge trouble so right changing the narrative. I mean, I agree with you. These, I mean, you can't argue with numbers, right? So if it's 9% and then like half of that or less than half of that is coming from cattle. But now if we can use the animals, we can treat them the way that they deserve to be treated. They can, free, you know, roamly you know, free, freely roam, you know, the planet and do their thing. Um, you know, he had made a funny joke. Uh, we were talking about it. He's like, you know, this crazy thing called photosynthesis is going to be the thing that saves our planet, you know, and it's it's true. If you have, you know, cows and chickens, and they're like, you know, pooping and peeing all over the place, and you're building up that topsoil, you know, that you get this nutrient density in the soil that the plant can now integrate and make, and you get better plants as well.
1: Yeah. And uh, that is definitely the way the
0: future. So let's, uh, I, have a, I have a selfish question for you. And this is actually something I had meant to ask you offline, but I'm going to ask you here. So I, when we, just coming back to protein for a second, I train, uh, I have like a three day, I train five to six days a week, resistant, resistant weights. And so the first day I do really heavy weights. So I need a spotter. It's like five rep maximum. You know, day two is like slightly lighter weights. You know, my reps go up to eight to 12. And then day three, I have, you know, even lighter weights. And then the reps are up at 20. The days that I do my heavy weights, the days where I have Giovanni spotting me because Mm -hmm. I'm going to drop the weight on my head or something, that's the day that I'm the hungriest. Yes. And those days, my first meal, so I don't, I typically will intermittent fast. So I might, you know, I'll work out fasted um, in the morning, let's call it seven or seven thirty, And then my first meal is around 11. It needs to be, I always joke. I'm like, I'm feeding my legs right now because I want the high protein. So two questions. One with the high protein that I'm having, so this is like eggs, I may have steak, maybe some bacon on there, avocados, like a whole bunch of broccoli. Am I amplifying the muscle protein synthesis with the diet on that day? That's my question one. And number two, the days that I eat protein, a higher protein meal as my first meal in the day, I find I hit my macros with Ease and grace. Yes. You know, the days where I, when I back end it, where I have my protein at dinner, yeah. I, I've been like snacking and like I'm off my macros. Can you, right. is, am I? Yeah. This
1: is an anecdote, but yeah, is, there, yeah. no, this is some. This? Yeah. So post training, when you have um, a higher protein diet, mm-hmm. uh, at least a higher protein meal, you're going for um, muscle recovery. And let's say you were to add in, so it's just muscle protein synthesis and recovery that's happening there. Okay. Right? So you're getting everything, you're going to be repairing your tissue. So mm-hmm. you may be less sore. Now, carbohydrates, but you're not really refilling your muscle glycogen. Mm. So if you wanted to refill your muscle glycogen, you would add some kind of uh, complex carb.
0: Okay. Does um, Bro- broccoli count? Yeah.
1: Well, it, it does. It's very, you know, all carbs count, but it's very fibrous. And listen, at, when I'm training, I don't really eat a high carb meal anyway. And mm-hmm. I think that you and I are probably pretty much in alignment. We're not really on a daily basis eating higher carbs.
0: No. Um, you got to earn your carbs.
1: Totally. <laughs> you got to earn it. You got to earn it 100%. <laughs> so, um, post training, uh, higher protein, you know, really you should keep your protein consistent. Mm-hmm. So, whether it's the first meal of the day, your first meal of the day, the first time you're eating, doesn't have to be breakfast, but it needs to be high protein.
0: Yeah, I love when I yeah. do that. I feel better when I have hot, like the most protein first time, my yes. first feeding opportunity when it's high.
1: Yep. And there's uh, studies from Heather Lighty's lab where they look at uh, brain imaging, and we and they know that if you have a high protein bolus, you're less likely to crave or want carbohydrates or to snack later on in the day.
0: That's so. Tr- that, and that's hundred percent true in my life. MRI
1: studies. Yeah. Yes.
0: So in my N equals one, like my own life, that is very true for me. When I have high protein in the the beginning, I hit my macros. I hit all my micronutrients. I'm I'm much better off when I have that bigger protein meal in the first part of my day.
1: Yes. And you're really working hard enough. So you're, you're hungrier because you're really stimulating your metabolism and you're working a large muscle group.
0: Yeah. And so for someone who's not training as often as I am, it would be important for them to still... Yes. drive that MPS, maybe even on, you know, on their recovery days or their rest days, because if you're not getting the MPS from the resistance training, right, we want to get it from the diet.
1: Right. And it's, it's even more important for them to be eating uh, optimal protein because you're stimulating your tissue, you're protecting your muscle, you're training hard. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine if you weren't doing that? I mean, you have to earn your carbohydrates as is, mm-hmm. um, you know, you you know, if you're not training, you shouldn't be eating more than 90 grams of carbohydrates.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, you can get all the carbs you need from protein. So for every 100 grams of protein, 60 grams gets converted to glucose mm-hmm. through So Yeah. And
0: I think for me, I, I, as a woman, I think, and this this is just purely my opinion, I think when I think about how I want to age, you know, I want to be able to, you know, my son, my my middle son, he's nine, he's about 71 pounds. I still throw him up in the air. You know, my seven-year-old, again, I carry him everywhere when he wants to be carried. I want to I maintain that yeah. as I get, I mean, of course, you know, when they're 17, I'm not going to be carrying them around. But, you know, at the point where m- they might potentially have children and I'm a grandmother, I want to be able to lift my grandchildren up. Yeah. I want to be able to travel with you know, a luggage, you know, my luggage is, you know, you, I don't know if you're like me, but I travel very heavy. I'm always paying overage fees, but you know, like 30, 30, 35 pounds for the luggage. I want to be able to push it on the overhead bin. I want to be able to have the fluidity and strength as I age to be able to do the things that really matter to me. And I think women, I don't know if we'll get here, but I have a, the upper body strength of women. I have a, such a problem with we can't do push up you know the push ups that we have are modified and again i know i'm going against scientific consensus a little bit here but you know w- when we talk about a woman's push up i want to i want to take someone's eye out like you should do push ups on your toes so anyway i'll just get off my soapbox and but <laughs> but that but you know i i work out because of how I want to live in twenty or thirty years. I want to be able to lift and throw my grandkids up in the air. I want to travel and not have someone have to handle my baggage for me. Totally. Um, you know,
1: and and that's um and that way of thinking is what is going to allow you to have exceptional health as you age. It is, you know, we see this this mind frame of aging that happens before individuals age. It's mm-hmm. I've hit this number. I'm not going to train hard. I'm going to get older. You know, it's, it's really, it's, it's a mind frame of aging.
2: It's
0: coasting downhill. Yeah. Yeah. So let's, let's talk about animal and plant proteins. You brought this up briefly. I want to, I want to dissect this a little bit more. So this was a huge point of contention. Uh, You know, if you've, uh, we were talking a little bit off uh, camera about some of the Joe Rogan debates with Dr. Joel Kahn and, you know, Chris Kresser and everything. This was a huge point of contention around the difference.
1: It, it can't be. I mean, it's a hard and fast number. It's weird. So let's talk about them. Let's, yeah.
0: Yeah. Let's talk about them. So animal proteins, advantages, pl- plant proteins, advantages, and then potential disadvantages of each. Let's talk okay. about
1: those. I'm going to, I'm going to give you the big picture view. Yes. We have talked earlier in this podcast that you need two and a half grams of leucine to get muscle protein synthesis. Yep. We have talked that muscle is the organ of longevity and that it's going to protect you as you age. It's going to protect your metabolism. It's going to protect you um, from cardiovascular disease, hypertension, obesity, right? All of that. And we know that in order to keep muscle healthy, you need around 30 grams of protein to stimulate. Muscle protein synthesis. This is not guesswork. This is in the literature. Tons of research from Doug Patton Jones, Stu Phillips, Dr. Donald Lehman. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: So we know it's two and a half grams of leucine. So now we've covered that and we've laid the foundation. For one three ounce chicken breast or one three ounce piece of beef, in order to get the equivalent plant protein, you need to eat between four and six cups of quinoa. We talked about how you need that nutrition at one time. You cannot graze. Right. Otherwise, you will be subthreshold. And you will never get that amount in the bloodstream, and you will never turn on that metabolic machinery. So what's the caloric? What are the calories? It's about 1,000 calorie difference. So we a know thousand. if, wow. yeah. So yeah. that, I mean, so right then and there, that's it. The conversation is essentially over. So, you know, you need two and a half grams of leucine Uh, the protein quality is really defined by the amino acid content. Yes. Plants make the correct amino acids for plants. Mm -hmm. Animals make the correct amino acid profile for animals.
0: So when we look at, when we look at animal or plant proteins, pardon me. So we look at, uh, I see a lot of pea, uh, pea proteins, soy proteins, wheat, rice, legumes, this kind of thing. Right. So six cups of, Quinoa would give you 25 gram would that would give you 25 grams of about 30 grams of
1: of protein. But again of the leucine. So it's really based on the leucine content.
0: Okay. So the leucine is sort of the thing that has to happen in order to okay. And this is where I think I love I am all for plants. I eat a very much plant-based diet, but I also eat animal proteins because of this reason, this MPS. And I have a pea-based protein upstairs. Of course, they all vary, but the pea, it's like, I think when I was doing calculations, I would need like 40 grams. So if we're talking about 25 grams of whey, about 10% of that's going to be leucine, like 2.5 grams, but you would need almost 40% more. Absolutely. And I think that that actually parses well with the caloric difference there as well. You have to take in 40%, almost 40% more calories, which again is going to drive up, which is going to, there's going to be metabolic consequences to that as well. Like if you are in caloric excess, yes. you know, nobody's going to argue that if you are taking in more calories that you're going to lose weight, like or right. if you need to lose weight or maintain your weight.
1: Right. I mean, and you can do it another way. You know, you can have a low-quality protein meal and add in a branched-chain amino acid if that's what you really wanted to do. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are ways around it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, pea protein is relatively new. This pea protein isolate, we have yeah. no idea of the long-term consequences. Right. I mean, we don't know. People right. are just started to, eat, you know, starting to eat these things, which is it's weird.
0: So let's play devil's advocate for a second. Let's say there's a vegetarian or a vegan in your practice, and they're like, "Listen." I have an ethical issue. I don't want to be eating meats. What would be your workaround for them? What would be the way that you would help someone who is vegetarian or vegan to be able to maintain and to drive this muscle protein synthesis, to get that two and a half grams of leucine? How would you address that?
1: I would give them a branched chain amino acid complex into their lower quality protein. If they wanted to have a, a serving of tofu, you know, we'd have to really make sure that they were uh, calorically managed. So figure out whatever right. their calorie intake is going to be. Mm-hmm. And then you would divide their meals up. Um, I probably wouldn't feed them multiple times a day. They should probably look to feed twice, maybe three times a day. And mm-hmm. at each feeding, we would add in a branched chain amino acid.
0: So leucine, isoleucine, valine, valine. thing. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Yep. The other thing I think people forget about, and this is where I think vegeta- you have to, and this is why I think there's a difference I was saying before, information and application
2: mm-hmm.
0: to have a balanced amino acid profile. If you are vegetarian and vegan requires a, a lot of planning, which uh-huh. I don't think a lot of people have the inclination or the skills or the time to do, but to have an understanding of how to combine amino acids, you know, limiting amino acids in plants and how to make sure that you are not deficient at least for me, who is, I'm a busy mom, I have three kids. I have, you know, I don't have. Gosh, the, I can't even imagine having three. But anyway, I, I can't. Like, I just don't yeah. have the time. And this is where I think, and it, this may be a really weak argument, but it's just easier to get a complete amino acid profile from meat, especially if you are conscious, like vegans and vegetarians are some of the most health conscious people on the planet. They don't smoke, they don't drink. Right. They're very particular and very conscious around the products that they buy and at the end of the day, it's just easier for me to get that complete profile from meat because I just I don't have the time and you know, you could argue the skill set to make sure that I am not going to be deficient in the things. I've seen B12, it's almost always I see B12 issues. And because they often don't have fish or um, products that have a really good omega-3 profile, I see DHA and EPA, like I see uh, omega-3 issues with them as well.
1: And they're smaller. So bone density can be an issue too. Mm -hmm. Um, Protein is made from bone. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So bone requires protein. And
0: we had uh, had Dr. Jolene Brighton on the podcast, and she was talking about the issue that she has with vegetarian women who are on the pill, because yeah. that also gobbles up your B twelve. B twelve has yep. been shown to gobble up um, B twelve. So when we talk about B twelve, I was looking up some B twelve sources that are that are plant based, and there's like I think nori and I think tempe. You know if what do you clinically see when you have someone who is a vegetarian or vegan in your practice, do you tend to see, is it the same? I'm seeing B12 yes. and, and D3 Almost. and omega-3. Iron,
1: their ferritin iron is notoriously well. mm-hmm. low. Mm-hmm. I mean, I see ferritins in your, their 20s and really for hair growth, it should be around hundred.
0: Yeah. Wow.
1: That's a storage form of iron. Um, mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. B12, omegas, ferritin, iron. Those are the big ones. Yeah. And of course, their energy, and then there's more subjective. So, the energy, digestion, I see a ton of hair loss, poor dentition.
2: Mm-hmm. Um,
0: All the things. And I, you know, the more, you know, I was trained uh, as a chiropractor. So, the musculoskeletal system is, of course, my forte, as I know you are very well versed in it as well. And it is so muscle and bone are just sisters, man. Like if you don't have one, you don't have the other. And you're, yeah. you know, you're, you know, your, the bones in your teeth, the, there's some really interesting research around the, the, the skeletal system as well, being this endocrine organ and the influence, the, you know, the talking that comes back and forth between the yeah. skeleton and the muscles. So let's move into growth pathways, because I hear this a lot with, I've heard this, well, muscles or muscles, uh, protein causes excess mTOR activation, therefore it must cause cancer.
1: There's a huge misunderstanding when it comes to protein and cancer. And when you think about protein and cancer, as it relates to mTOR, first of all, cancer is a disease of the genome, right? And when you think about cancers, you've got lung, breast, colon, prostate, right? And there's initiation factors that happen with all of this. Protein has never been shown to A cause cancer ever in any of the research. When you think about mTOR, which is this um, serine uh, uh, kinase, which Mm -hmm. is this growth, uh, it's a growth complex. mTOR is a growth, is a cellular growth pathway. So there are some, you know, forms of cancer that when they've become cancerous, there's a kind of like a a propagation, a growth phase. That being said, individuals have isolated this process, this pathway to say, because protein stimulates mTOR, which it does, also exercise stimulates mTOR, because again, it's a protein synthesis growth pathway. These things are not necessarily bad. Right. 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 And There's mTOR in the pancreas, which is different than mTOR in the muscle. And the the anti-animal narrative has tried to find ways to target protein, and specifically animal-based protein. So that's where the um, mTOR story kind of originates. But the biggest stimulator of mTOR is insulin. And that is really from excess high carbohydrates.
0: Right. So we have, so mTOR is this nutrient sensing pathway, right? So protein, whether it comes from animals or plants is going to drive it, correct?
1: That's right. And it's driven by different um, stimuluses. So for Mm -hmm. example, in the liver and pancreas, it would be insulin would be the bigger driver as opposed to amino acids. Amino acids. Yeah.
0: No, you bring up an excellent point here. I don't think people are aware that insulin has a biphasic release. So there's sort of this two, there's these two um, ways that insulin is rolled out, right? So yeah. phase one and phase mm-hmm. two. Can you explain what those yeah. are and how that's different in terms of proteins versus uh, yeah. insulin?
1: Yeah. So people talk about how um, protein causes an increase in insulin. Well. Protein causes an increase in the phase one response, which is the preformed insulin in the pancreas. So it's, you have a protein meal, it causes a very slight spike in insulin and that's really to stimulate growth. So it then stimulates mTOR, leucine with insulin stimulates mTOR and you get a a, a protein synthesis. The issue with um, the biphasic response is, Protein actually doesn't cause that second phase response of needing the body to generate more insulin. That's purely a carbohydrate and excess carbohydrate thing. Individuals should not be confused. Protein does cause an increase in insulin. It is very slight and not to the extent as a carbohydrate meal.
0: This is so incredibly important because yeah. when we think about phase 1 you know i'll just extend and you know build on what you said that phase 1 is just literally to get the stuff that you eat into the periphery and it's a 10 minute thing it's 10 minutes and then it's gone whereas that phase 2 release is a you know it can reach it's like 2 to 3 hours postprandial yeah. right so yes. and is that the difference then between a leucine mediated mtor response versus an insulin mediated mTOR response. So the insulin mediated mTOR is going to. La- is is there a?
1: I think that's a really. I, I don't think that we know that answer. I think that's really astute. Um, mTOR is incredibly complex and nuanced. Mm-hmm. Um, it and a recent
0: it, discovery. It's recent as well. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So the the yeah. the the, grand, the the father of mTOR is really Sabatini, mm-hmm. um, and he's a, out of MIT. So what you're saying is is a really good point, and and I don't know if we. If the science knows the answer to that, the mm-hmm. um, the mTOR system does go through a period of about four to five hours to reset, but once it's stimulated, it's it's active. The issue with the insulin is that people are eating uh, high carbohydrates throughout the day, so they're co- or they're snacking on carbs, or they're they're um, kind of grazing, and then this per- it's the perpetual stimulation of mTOR
2: mm-hmm. that is a
1: problem. But again. Going back to uh, the very fundamentals is it's not a initiator of cancer. So the studies, you know, when you look at uh, risk ratios, so the the risk of doing this thing and getting this result, the risk of smoking uh, to getting lung cancer. Mm-hmm. So when you look statistically, that relative risk has to be greater than two. Okay, to be a doubling,
0: like you have to yeah. double it.
1: So if you smoke. Yeah the number the relative risk is 12 that you'll Mm -hmm. get
0: cancer yeah like a 12x increase
1: okay yeah um so that but if you eat protein it's the relative risk is 1.2 to 1.3 which means there's no risk so the data has never supported a dietary connection between um eating dietary protein and getting cancer this, again, is this anti-animal narrative that's taken one pathway, the mTOR pathway, and said, okay, well, if this pathway is turned on in cancer, protein must cause it. But this pathway is turned on on, in exercise as well. But no one says, well, exercise causes cancer.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: And therefore, we shouldn't exercise.
1: Correct. So again, this goes back to an anti-animal narrative. um, There is that initiation and prolongation phase when it comes to uh, cancer, as it is, um, you know that dysregulation that happens,
2: mm-hmm.
1: mTOR and growth has never been involved in an initiation or, or defect of the genome. It's it's just it's not a um, it's not an argument that makes sense. And then when you look at the studies, so there's some studies out of um, I think Davis, and uh, they use these overfed obese mouse models. That are ad libitum fed Mm -hmm. carbohydrates.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: So, all the studies as it relates to mTOR are overfed, insulin driven.
0: Right. Right. Yeah, so there's a couple limitations there. One, you know, we're not necessarily obese. These studies haven't looked at, if you're looking at animal models, they don't really translate 100% one to one to humans. And then if you're only looking at obese, metabolically deranged rats to begin with, you're going to see a different result versus if you looked at, you know, you or me. Right. So let's, let's bring this. uh, And I like what you said there around absolute versus relative risk. And this is, I think a perfect segue. I know we've already touched on game changers a little bit. You know, you wrote an Instagram post and I'll link this Instagram post in our show notes, because you were pointing out some of the Shortcomings of the film, you know, this reliance on you know epidemiological studies, uh, not telling the entire truth with McGregor and, and Diaz, and you know, for the most part, I thought people were thanking you for your thoughts. It was, you know, it was it was a thank you so much for telling us how you think. But then there was some really, there was some ugliness in in some oh, of the comments. It and, was a
1: lot. There was a lot. I had to block and delete a lot of people. They're crazy.
0: Yeah. And, you know, I say this with love and respect for people who choose to be vegan, but sometimes they are the worst advocates for their cause because yeah. they're so bloodthirsty to um, to attack people that are that have contra, yeah. you know, that, that have views that are that contraindicate their own. And I think it's it's important for us to be able to have a non-hysterical. Narrative and discussion around it, and you know, if you came on this podcast and you had a completely different view from from me, I would not sit here and try to pick you apart. And this is, you know, I uh, the the what's his name, Uh, James Wilkes, you know, just uh, this Joe Rogan, he was just picking Chris Cresser apart, and I thought it was just such a terrible debate uh, from that perspective. But what I would like for you to do if you can, is just share your thoughts, overall thoughts on the film. You know, were there things you liked about it? Were there things that fell short? And let's kind of talk about those things.
1: Um, I'm really glad that number one, you called it a film because a documentary typically shows both sides to a story. Mm -hmm. And this was a propaganda driven film, which the executive producer invested 140, I think he's the CEO of a pea protein company. Mm -hmm. He invested $140 million into a company. And then a film came out about how you should go more plant-based. I really want that hour and a half of my life back <laughs> because I was sitting there watching it. And the only reason I watched it is because I got so many questions. Mm-hmm. It was so poorly done. In fact, I don't even know what parts of the science that it are true that I could pull out of that Film, but it, it's not meant to be science. It's meant to be entertainment. Mm-hmm. The one thing that I would be positive with the takeaway is that there are various diets of the human bo- that the human body can manage and succeed at. I do have some professional athletes that are vegan, and they're incredible. Um, one of my best friends is an orthopedic surgeon, and, and she's vegan, and she just ran a hundred miles. Right? She's incredible. So I think that it it does good. It, it does a good job to show diversity. Mm -hmm. But the truth is it's a fear-mongering propaganda film that is dangerous for the public and dangerous for our aging population. There's little to no science in that film. I mean, listen, they said that um, you can get the same amount of protein from a peanut butter sandwich. I mean, Mm -hmm. these are hard and fast numbers. Mm -hmm. The burrito study, I mean, that's so ridiculous The you know, that erections are going to be better. I mean, I see in my clinic, those that are vegan and vegetarian have lower testosterone, higher sex hormone binding globulin. Yeah. I mean, it's just not... It's well, the, there's
0: also like the more insulin you have. I mean, this is a direct relationship to insulin. Like the higher your insulin, the lower your SHBG uh, is going to be anyway. So this is...
1: I mean, you know, it was, yeah. there, was no, there was almost no science in this film. And uh, they didn't show you all the athletes that dropped out. They didn't show you the trajectory of their careers where they got injured, Mm. that the majority of those athletes, they don't define what their diet was, what kind of vegetarian are you defining vegetarian by eating, um, eggs Eggs and fish. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. that strong man who actually uh, was considered the strong man in his one event eats 400 grams of protein a day and eats a bunch of protein shakes.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Right. Um, And his performance, he was, you know, outclassed or, uh, you know, I think in 2019, I don't remember the date, but they did 300 pounds more than what he did in that, uh, event. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it was very cherry picked and really poorly done. And it's dangerous for people to think that that's where they're getting science,
0: um, yeah. And I think this is, you know, when we talk about, again, I, ha- I I, feel like I'm a broken record, but the information versus application part of it. So the information, uh, you know, you can even question the information that was presented, as you were saying, like these epidemiological studies, they give people these questionnaires and say, you know, what did you eat over the last four months, six months? No,
1: what did you eat oh, 10 years ago? Fruit, right. fruit, food frequency questionnaires. Yeah. They're, they're Epidemiological data from 10 years ago. Right. And I, I can't remember what I, I had that. last week. I, totally. I was saying the same thing. I can't remember
0: what I had last week. If you ask me Monday what I had, I have no idea.
1: So bad. And we have randomized controlled trials. There are multiple randomized control trials that support high quality protein. Mm-hmm. There are no randomized controlled trials that support vegetarianism. There's not one. Doesn't mean I'm against it. I was vegetarian, macrobiotic for many years. Mm-hmm. For many years but you you can make an emotional decision and be very clear that this is your emotional decision but you cannot say i'm doing this because this is better for my health 100% not true
0: i mean i think when you look at vegetarian and veganism compared to a standard american diet it is better you know we anything is better than the yeah, standard american okay. diet it's you know you'll see you know if you start to eat more plants you know i was saying before you'll get all the nutrient de- you know you're going to get the fiber and you're going to get the polyphenols and the all those all the flavonoids all those things but it is almost a, it's it's transient and if you don't what i would like to see is a study looking at not vegetarians and vegans versus the standard american diet but vegetarian and or vegan and contrast that with more of a, you know, I would call it an omnivore. So you're you're still eating, you know, primarily plants, but then you have some, you have protein on your plate that is derived from animals. That study, to my knowledge, and if I'm wrong, I, please correct me, but I don't think that that study has been done.
1: I mean, I don't know. I haven't seen one yet. You mm-hmm. know? I
0: um. mean, that's the, next, that's the next iteration of this conversation because I get, I, I become, you know, frankly bored, but Annoyed with this constant, you know, well, vegetarian is better. Well, keto is better. Well, paleo is better. Well, and there's no one diet for the human. There's no one. We all have, you and I are very similar. Probably very, if we looked at our genomic map, we would probably find that we're very similar. But that doesn't mean that just because it it works for me, it's going to work for someone else. So there's so many things that come into Play with 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 an optimal diet, like you were saying. Your your girlfriend is a, a vegan, and she ran a hundred. I mean, that's extraordinary.
1: That's extraordinary, and, and her
0: constitution totally may completely complement and allow for that.
1: Yes, and we're going to find there's some data. There's some research being done right now that looks at the microbiome and that those with oh, a yeah. very high fiber diet, vegan style diet, why do they not become deficient so significantly deficient and there is some evidence and it hasn't been published yet you know that points out that they that the microbiome that the bacteria is actually extracting and you know breaking down the amino acids Mm -hmm. to the for the requirement of the human which is interesting so someone could eat a very low protein diet and their microbiome has the capacity to generate the amino acids
0: yeah yeah
1: I mean that blows my mind, but it, it makes sense there 's just so much we don 't know
0: yeah, and there was a lot of i guess my other issue with the film was this this idea of healthy user bias so i 've talked we i can, i think I already mentioned this, but vegans are so health conscious already, yeah. so is it the vegan diet, or is it because they are so conscious around not smoking, not drinking, being physically active, activating their parasympathetic you know they do yoga or they do meditation or breath work this is you know, there's these spurious correlations that you, or these confounding variables rather, that you can't sort of, is it the plants or is it that their lifestyle is just far superior to the standard American lifestyle that you're seeing some of these benefits from? Yeah. Yeah. Ah, So that's uh, that was kind of my issue uh, in general uh, with that movie. I would say in terms of what I liked about it, I agree with the idea that plants are good. we should be eating plants. there are you cannot really refute the the amount of data that is plants are good for us. You know I had uh, Dr. Um, David Sinclair on the podcast, and he was talking about the xenohormetic stress of stressed out plants right so the resveratrols and the ECGCs from green tea and all this kind of stuff so that I'm I'm all in for, but I am not all in for manipulating data and if it's not going to be, I mean, Dr. Walter Longo has this fasting mimetic diet, right? So it's like five days, you caloric restrict. But there's a reason why his fasting program includes food because he knows that humans are not going to go five days without food. It's just too hard. And that's, you know, again, call it a weak argument, but this is a clinical pattern that I've seen. It is too hard for vegetarians and vegans to make sure that they are getting the appropriate amount of amino acids and proteins from. A plant-based diet; they, it requires an extraordinary amount of understanding. Uh, you clearly have colleagues that are that are doing it and 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 thriving on it. Yep. But for the general population, it's just easier to get it from steak.
1: Yeah, I mean, couldn't agree more.
0: So let's talk about mindset because uh, one of the things I love and admire about you is your grit and your perseverance, uh, even in the you know in the face of we just talked about animal proteins and I'm. I'm I'm assuming there's going to be some flack around that, but you work a lot with military. You work with Navy SEALs, you work with, you know, the Canadian military. I suspect from their training that they have a totally different mindset than that of civilians.
1: Yes, but it can be taught. They, it, it, there are components to their mindset that absolutely can be applicable and practiced.
0: So what is what are some of the observations that you see in that population that we don't see uh, prevalent in in, civilian, in the yes. civilian population?
1: Well, first of all, my husband is a Navy SEAL. Um, so it's very interesting to see it both professionally and personally.
0: Who's hilarious, by the way. <laughs> when he takes over your Instagram, That's I love when he does that.
1: Every, everybody messages yeah. about that. He's he really funny. Mm-hmm. And that actually is one of their superpowers, is humor. It could literally be the worst situation ever and they're making jokes about it. hmm It is uncanny their capacity for optimism. It is
0: what other choice is there when you're faced? It is
1: outrageous. It is outrageous their uh, capacity for optimism. I had one guy, and uh, he is a 20 year seal. He's a breacher, so he's a big kind of tree trunk Texan. Been in the teams for 20 years and um, never got injured in combat. Was home from a deployment and on his motorcycle going, I don't know, five miles an hour. And he was struck by a 17 year old girl who was texting and driving Mm. and he lost his leg Mm. to see my clinic. And, you know, nobody, nobody really is going to punch a five foot one, like woman like myself in the face. So I, when I get these guys in the, the clinic, I have, um, ability to be able to ask them questions that maybe another physician wouldn't. Prod, mm-hmm. and I said, you know, hey, Brian, how are you doing? And he looks at me. He's like, well, Doc, you know, I'm having this phantom limb, limb pain, and you know, I was hoping you can help me with it. And I, I look at him again, and I'm like, Brian, I mean, how are you really doing? And he looks at me, totally bewildered, and is like, uh, Doc, what are you talking about? And I said to him, Well, what do you mean? What am I talking about? And I go and I reiterate his story about he's this big and he never got hurt and he looks at me just straight and he goes uh doc that was six months ago literally <laughs> wait what so I, I called Shane and I, I tell the story a lot and I called Shane they're, they're friends and Shane had spoke with them and knew he was coming in and um, mm-hmm. you know they they talk and I called Shane and he and he said you know well how was Brian's visit and I said well you know I can't really talk about it, but what I can tell you is that when I asked him how he was doing, like, deeply about losing his leg, and he looked at me and he said, uh, yeah, that was six months ago. Mm-hmm. Like, and i, I hear this dying like, it's, it's he in the past. He had moved off the X. So he yes. had moved off the X. He had mm-hmm. literally moved off the X. Mm-hmm. And there's this dead silence on the other end the, from Shane, and Shane's like, uh, yeah, babe, that was six months ago. Why are you, what are you even talking about?
2: Mm-hmm
0: hmm
1: So there's like I this mean, there mental is,
0: grit and this. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I mean, most of us are still talking about what happened two years ago. Oh I was from so childhood.
0: Tired. Forget forget <laughs> two years ago. I'm still talking about what's happened from childhood.
1: <laughs> These guys are not like that. Yeah. It, it doesn't exist. It is, this is my new norm. What do I gotta do? And uh, this is how it rolls. And it is legitimate and it is deep and it is not an effort.
0: That's incredible. And so how do you think we can apply? So I would love to, I mean, I full tr- I would not, I would be hung up with the lost leg. That would be catastrophic to me. I can't even imagine, you know, the empathy, the, I can't even imagine what that would feel like. So if you, if you take that sort of resilience and that forward-looking perspective, what, how can we apply that you know, as a population, how can I, or how can I, let's forget fr- yeah. about the population. How can I take that? It's what can I learn reframing. from him?
1: I mean, it's all about reframing and, and I witness. So I, you know, I work, a lot of my patient population are Navy SEALs. Um, they have to be combat operators. So the, the sector of the, the military that I take are, are combat operators.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, I mean, that's not all my practice because there's only so many of them. Um, mm-hmm. But it, they have a way of reframing. That is practiced and instantaneous. So, we all think practice makes perfect, but really, practice, and I'm talking about the mental practice, makes permanent.
2: Mm, mm-hmm.
1: Practice makes permanent. Mm-hmm. Whatever the story is that you're telling yourself, and it's not even the story, whatever the networks that you utilize to think, they become permanent. Yeah. Literally, our Things could be going up in flames, and my husband is going to make a joke about it because mm-hmm. he knows whenever something gets really bad, it's th- there is an instantaneous reframing, and it's funny. And
2: Whereas,
1: there's
0: no point in losing your mind, like you know, your chances of survival if you keep a cool head. I would imagine are much greater than if you are freaking out and you are in fight or flight and you can't think, you can't use your frontal lobe for executive decision-making and strategy. Totally. Yeah.
1: I mean, so their, their capacity is, it's quick-witted and they, they don't get stuck. So they're not reliving. They, they don't relive. They just move on quickly.
0: And I like what you're talking about with practice makes permanent because just like an exercise, you know, I've had this goal all year to do five unassisted chin-ups when I first started at the beginning of the year, I could do zero of the five and it took me easily seven months to do the first one. And then of course, as soon as you kind of get that one, the second one comes a little easier, the third one, but it's the same when you're training your mind as it is training your somatic, your your body as well. Like it's Mm -hmm. just the consistent application of that strategy over time that develops that toughness.
1: And there's no storytelling. They don't have this narrative. Mm. I see that a lot of the patients that I have that struggle have a narrative, mm-hmm. and they're narrative- that they're tethered
0: to that they that they yeah. want that they yes. often it, it's part of their. I would see this a lot with my chronic fatigue and fibromyalgia patients. I would notice that they would say, "My fibromyalgia, my." They would. They would. It was. It was integrated. The label was integrated into their sense of self. Um, so there was a lot of coaching around. It's not your fibromyalgia. It's just fibromyalgia,
1: right and now. Totally. Yeah. And, yeah. and there doesn't have to be a narrative, right? There doesn't have to be a narrative around it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just an execution. And my, a really good friend named Jason Redman, and he's a pretty famous SEAL, incredible guy. Has a book called. Um, has many books. So um, the, actually, let me rephrase that. This is his second book. So he has the, the trident and overcome and, you know, really watching him uh, talk about his injuries. So he had 40 surgeries and multiple gunshot wounds to the face and the arm. And one went through his skull and, you know, you talk to him and he just says, you know, you got life is going to ambush you and there are going to be life ambushes, but you prepare for it.
0: Mm-hmm. You, you, you train for it. You expect it. You expect it. And when it happens,
1: you move off the X quickly.
2: Mm.
1: I mean, this is a guy who, I don't know if you've seen it, but there's a big orange sign and he became very famous for a sign that he put on the the door that said, if you're coming in here to feel bad for me, you know, go elsewhere. Mm
2: -hmm. This is a
1: a room full of optimism and hope, and I'm going to make a full recovery, Mm -hmm. you know? And essentially, if you're not comfortable with that, move on. Love that. And, and, And so their capacity to heal is is greater because they don't have these mental blocks of, oh my God, I can't believe this happened, or I'm going to worry about this or worry about whatever is going on in my life. They, they, they don't have that.
0: And I think you have spoken about this before in terms of the different, and this may play into it, the different types of stress and how we relate to it. So you've talked about stress and distress and the difference between them. Yeah. I, yeah. Can you explain that for uh, for the listeners?
1: Yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting when we think of stress, people always think of fight or flight, Mm -hmm. but that's only one application of stress. There's fight or flight, there's tendon befriend, and then there's the courage response. And hands down, the most successful patients of mine have the courage response. And what that means is it's, it's like if there's two guys ready, getting ready to jump off of an airplane. You have one guy whose blood pressure is, you know, 140 over 90. And, and he's like, oh my God, I can't believe I'm gonna do this. This is horrible. You know, my life is gonna be over. I can't believe I'm jumping, you know, jumping out of the plane. And then you have a guy standing next to him, and he's having the same physical stress response where his blood pressure is 140 over 90, and his heart is racing, and he's, you know, has heart palpitation. And instead, his interpretation is, man, I cannot wait to do this jump.
2: Mm-hmm. I'm
1: gonna crush it. hmm they're literally having the same physiological experience, but the one defining factor is one is interpreting it as fight or flight, and the other is interpreting it as a courage response.
0: Two different ends of the same. It's sort of the same spectrum, but they're two different ends of that spectrum. One,
1: it's, it's, it's Right. The stimulus yeah. is the same, but yeah. the output in the experience, that internal experience is totally different.
0: It's so interesting that you say that. I often, when I am nervous, so one of my first interviews on the podcast was Elizabeth Gilbert, who I've just adored for years, and I was going into the interview. I was like, "Oh my god, I'm so nervous!" And then Giovanni, my partner, was like, "What are you?" And I was like, "Oh no, no, I'm excited. I'm, you know, just that, just that little like nervous versus excited." And you know, you go into it, um, and one of the things I've learned um, in this. Maybe this may resonate with you. I'm not sure if it does, but I have, I always have come to the conclusion that as long as I do my best, whatever the outcome is, whether I'm going to, if I'm jumping out of the airplane and I splat, or if I jump out Uh of the airplane and it's, it's a successful landing, as long as I know that before I jump, I've done my work, I've done, I've put my best foot forward. It's actually the effort that counts. It's the process. It's not the outcome. Even though, of course, we all want a great outcome, and I'm not trying to divorce you from that or anybody from that who's listening. But I love this idea of, and I keep talking about it uh, with different guests and kind of seeing how it lands. But I love this idea of bringing back the idea of effort is cool and and putting like uh, you know in preparation for our interview, I have you know I I have I don't know 17 pages of notes and and. And I, and I'm proud of that because I think whether or not I bombed on this conversation or not, I know that going into it, I tried my absolute best with the information and the tools that I had. Mm -hmm. So no matter what the outcome is, I can't be upset with what happens because I know internally that I've done what I am. I have actual, I've actualized my capacity.
1: And I think that that's brilliant and helpful for everybody. Listening, you know it is, you know it's oftentimes people think about habits and kind of the end result, but it's really about believing who you are and that mm-hmm. identity,
0: and knowing, yeah, and getting in touch with who you are and saying, yeah, you know,
1: yeah. it's it's like, are you doing things that identify you as someone who puts in effort? Your mm-hmm. your the identity is 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 you're doing the the steps necessary
2: to execute, mm-hmm. right.
0: Yeah. I love that. You know, I have to say, I am so impressed with your breadth of knowledge. The way that you explain things, it's so simple, but it's it, the things that we're talking about is, are very complex things, very complex. and you are able to distill it in a very easy to understand way. So, I just want to thank you so much for your brain, uh, for your time. I know uh, you have a little baby to get, uh, to get back to. I just wanted to, you know, if anybody listening to this wants to work with you, I know you have a clinic. I don't know if you're accepting new patients, but if people want to find you, let's say online or, or right. in real life, where can, where can people go to find you?
1: Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me on. It's really nice to have a conversation with someone who is incredibly well-prepared. And I've done a lot of interviews and I have to say the time that you spent preparing was very obvious. Thank to you. Me. Thank you. So Thank you. I, I really appreciate that. They can find me on Instagram. I'm very active at Dr. Gabrielle Lyon, my website, which is going through a rebrand, but also they can find me there at drgabriellyon.com. And I do send out a weekly newsletter and that comes out on Sunday and I will be getting that going again. I took a little break uh, with the maternity leave and the baby, um, but I put evidence-based articles in there. Uh, places that I'm speaking, things that I've seen. And I always do a quote that I've written. um, And I try to make it very valuable for the reader, because I know everyone is kind of vying for your time. They can find me on Twitter and Facebook with the same name, Dr. Gabrielle Lyon. And then Twitter is the same. And I'll be, I'm in the process of writing a book. And uh, hopefully that will be get you know, that will get done in the next nine months, (laughs) the second baby, the second child. (laughs) (laughs) and uh, I uh, have a, a muscle centric course coming out. Oh,
0: that's exciting. That's exciting. Amazing. Thank you so much for your time. Dr. G really appreciate it.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much for having me.
0: hope you enjoyed today's episode. You can find all this information at our website, bettershow.co. That's bettersho Co. Maybe the simplest way to keep in touch with me is to sign up for my email. When you go to bettershow.co, there'll be a little pop-up and I send a weekly email on all things mindset, nutrition, fitness, uh, longevity, aging, things that are capturing my attention that week in a newsletter that we call Brain Candy. You can find me on social on Twitter. It's Doctor underscore Stephanie. On Instagram, I am Doctor Stephanie Estima. That's S T E P H A N I E E S T I M A. And finally, a legal and medical disclaimer: This podcast is for general information only, and the advice, discussions, and recommendations that we discuss on this podcast do not replace medicine, chiropractic, or any other primary healthcare professionals' advice or care. There is no doctor-patient relationship that has been established in the consumption of this podcast, and the use and implementation of the information contained here are at the sole discretion of the listener. The content in this podcast is not intended to be used as a substitute for any professional advice, diagnosis, or treatment.